Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Comedian, producer, and writer Roy Wood Jr. has entertained audiences for more than 25 years. Luke Cage, if you don't know nothing about comic books or superheroes, Luke Cage is this TV show about an indestructible black man. The brother's bulletproof, super strength, he'll throw a truck at you like a football. You would think with his resume, he would be somewhere with Iron Man trying to save the universe. This never leaves Harlem. He ain't got the time. Luke Cage don't care about the rest of the world. Luke Cage is like, look, until Thanos come by the Apollo Theater, that ain't none of my business. That was a clip from Roy's 2019 stand-up special, No One Loves You. As a comedy writer, his storytelling weaves pop culture, politics, and social trends. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Roy Wood Jr. works on numerous projects across radio, television, and film, but he's best known for his appearances on Comedy Central's The Daily Show. Back in April of this year, he joined a select group of comedians by headlining the White House Correspondents' Dinner. A special note for our listeners, this interview was recorded before the historic strike of members of SAG-AFTRA. Roy, welcome to Disrupted. Hello, hello. Hello. It's great to have you on the show. And before we talk about your work as a writer and a comedian, I want to take a step back to your time. You were born in New York, but raised in Birmingham, Alabama. What's it like being yeah. raised in Birmingham? Um, you know, I, I don't have anything to compare it to. Like it was the South, you know, we played outside every night. There were mosquito trucks coming by. Um, I spent my summers in Mississippi. Um, you know, a, a good sense of community, lots of people. I, mean, I definitely felt loved by a lot of people in the neighborhood, um, you know, from the guy that ran the Circle K to the baseball coaches to vacation Bible school and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, it was it was it was a good upbringing. You know, I was pretty solo as a child. Um, I'm I'm the only child by my mother. I grew up alone. I have half siblings, but none were in the house with me. So, you know, it, it definitely was a different type of life early on that was, you know, isolated is not the word, but just I lived in my head. I had an imagination. So I imagine that imagination helps as a writer and as a comic because you get to imagine <laughs> things beyond where you are. One of the things I wanted to point out, Roy, people often have this view of the South that is so limited. And as someone who grew up in the South myself, I'm always amazed by what they think that we were doing at the time. How do you feel like growing up in that sense of community, that sense of connection? I'm smiling because you mentioned Vacation Bible School, and it's that time of year again. How did that sense of community shape the work that you're doing now? Um, with regards to defending the South and stuff, I would say that 
that that work shaped me in a way of knowing that the way that the South is portrayed on television is a bit of a lie. It's not the whole truth. You know, they only want to talk about the things that get people, you know, upset and riled up and pissed off. But there are tons of good, warm, kind hearted people, you know, not just in Alabama, but, you know, Mississippi, Georgia, all over the South. So I grew up with a more nuanced view of the Southern experience and what it means to be proud to be from a place that has so much to be ashamed of. So, you know, that part of it is definitely, it, it irks me. I'll say it that way. When like some governor passes some law or proposes something and they just assume that the law passed 99 to one. These laws are getting passed, you know, 60% approval. So what about that 40? They're not worth fighting for. They're not worth going in and trying to do something about. And then then there's that who say, well, just move. When'd you leave your home? (laughs) I'm sure there's something that sucks about where you live. Everywhere has something that sucks. Um, Are some things more backwards and more damaging? I would imagine so. But to move means that you are to disavow all the good that is there as well. And it's such an asinine, idiotic uh, perspective to have on what people are going through. One of the ways that I think people are able to affirm the diversity and the beauty of community, not just in the South, but really across the country and across the world, is chronicling that experience. And you do that in the work that you do now. But you've also talked about your father and his work as a journalist in creating an opportunity to tell those stories in their fullness, in all their complexities, but to do it on one's own terms. How is his legacy as being a journalist of chronicling those stories, how is that connected to what you just talked about of being able to hold up a mirror in a different way? Yeah, I think my dad, you know, my dad, like I rode around the South with him a lot to speaking engagements. You know, when I got my learner's permit when I was 15, I mean, I was his chauffeur essentially for a year. It was like the green book. (laughs) I'm just driving him around the South while he did gigs. And you meet a lot of people. You learn a lot about the country, too. You learn a lot about the people in these armpits down in the Black Belt and people over in, you know, rural Mississippi, outside of Jackson and stuff. You know, I'm talking Mount Baia type country. Um, you know, you meet people in those places or to see my father interact with people in those places. And, and like, these places that are so full of despair, so full of so much hope and optimism that it's also helped to keep me optimistic um, just about the world in general. Talk to me about that sense of optimism. I think a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed right now. They're looking at Supreme Court decisions. They're looking at what's happening locally. And some people may have the cynicism. What is it that keeps you hopeful and optimistic as you see the world Um, around you? Because you have to keep fighting. There's other people fighting. So you don't want to just give in. If you give in, then the fate is sealed. So it's enough to know that, all right, if you don't stop, then something will keep festering. If you don't treat the wound, if you don't try to treat the wound, you're going to keep bleeding. So, you know, as much, you know, I'm not here to be a beacon for other people. I've never tried to be. 
my job is to get through this and put something out there for people that hopefully you can laugh at to feel a little bit better and then go and continue to fight. I'm not one of the fighters. That's political satire's triage on the battlefield. We're not the cannons. We're not the rockets. We're none of that, you know, and I think people hold it up like that sometimes. But I think we just do a good job of being able to boil things down, hopefully in a way that people understand and also to show people that they're not alone, you know, in that fight, you know. One of the things we talk about on this show is the role of disruptors. And we definitely see you as a disruptor, someone who is challenging and pushing on their own terms, but also bringing people together. And last month, I had the opportunity to see your show in Connecticut. And before you started, I sort of looked across the audience. It's a very diverse group of people who came together to hear you and to hear your work. And you, right from the start, made mention of that. What is that sort of changing demographics of the people who follow you, the people that you engage? Does that shape the way that you deliver political satire? Or do you feel like, look, this is the message, this is the work I'm doing, regardless of who's listening and receiving it? I would say the one thing that changes is maybe how I deliver the message, if that makes sense. Like... Like, the difficulty with my audience is that it might be it might be somebody from a poor demographic, you know. Then it could be some rich uppity Martha's Vineyard type person. White and black. You know, black, you know, we're talking educated black people. You know, we're talking educated people in general. Um... But then it's also people that's from the gutter and still trying to make it out of that that come to the show. Um, the the most difficult thing I have, the the biggest challenge I have with my material with my audience is that half of my audience is hearing and understanding these problems in the world for the first time. So black people already know there's police, this, that, and the third. But there's white people in the audience that may not have always seen it like that or have not always had an opportunity to take in that perspective. You know, for me, the perfect the perfect joke is a joke that has someone, a white person going, wow, I didn't think of it like that. And a black person going, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell you. That's the perfect joke. I don't always hit that, you know, more often than not, I oscillate between the two. But when I'm in a sweet spot, I can do both. Do you feel pressure? Because in some ways you become an interlocutor between these communities and in some instances for communities. Is there pressure in doing that? No, because you're not going to always succeed. I think I think to think of yourself as that, to walk on stage with this idea that my thoughts are going to be all unifying and when I walk off stage, I can wipe my there. All right. Problem solved. On to the next city. No, like not everybody's going to get it. Not everybody's going to be with it either. You know, there's I mean, even most recently when I was on stage and I was talking about, you know, the Ocean Gate submarine Titanic fiasco and. 
you know, and just, you know, in the sense that like the ba- the base premise of the joke was that, you know, we present we presented this as five victims to which I said there was four victims and a dummy. And there's a difference. And so this idea of this comparison of what white billionaires do from a travel and adventure sense. If we go back to Steve Fawcett, who wrote balloons all over the globe and died in the mountains, just just de- like these billionaires who die just having a good time, you know, or they're always building some sort of device to go somewhere. And then to make the comparison, you know, say what you want about black billionaires, but they don't die. And that was the basic, you know, thesis of the joke. And then you start looking person by person at every black billionaire. When you go from Oprah to Robert Smith, I think Tyler Perry's there. Puffy's close. So Jay-Z's there. None of them have a submarine. And you know, if Puffy had a submarine, he would tell you. He it would be branded. Shut up about it. <laughs> And so it just becomes observations of culture and what is the responsibility you have to your culture. So, yeah, it's a submarine joke, but at its core for the people who get it, it's really about how so many black people choose to figure out a way to give back and do something. That's not to say that other white billionaires aren't charitable. I know Bezos and his ex-wife, they slinging money every which way. I know Bill Gates, you know, research and AIDS in Africa and Bono, like there's, there's good ones, but to talk about specifically the spending behaviors of black billionaires and the responsibility to give back to the black community, that's what that joke is about. But if somebody in the crowd decides that I'm making fun of dead people and you fold your arms you're not going to get that and you're not going to listen to the rest of the bit with the same ear that I need you to. I cannot be concerned about you. I cannot worry myself with that person. I'm not going to change the entry point of the joke so that we can get to somewhere better. Because for me, that's not fun. I enjoy almost being offensive. Or sometimes being offensive, depending on who, depending on who's hearing it, you know. Um, I had a woman walk out of a show in San Francisco um, earlier this year, um, because I, I, I talked about, again, the basic premise of the joke was, you know, black people, do you ever see other countries getting money from America and get jealous? And this was about Ukraine. And this was about the aid and the war stuff and the money that we're sending to Ukraine. And so that was essentially the joke was just, man, I wish we could get some of that money and some of them research, them reparations show would be nice. It's a joke about reparations. But a woman walked out of the show and she's from Ukraine, of course. And she sent me a long email. It's very scathing. And for her, she interpreted that as me being against the war in Ukraine. And she she gave me all these statistics and, you know, the war only it would be more expensive for our troops to go than for us to sponsor a war. And I get that. And that's fine. But I was never saying don't do that. I'm just saying 
when you really are hungry and you see someone else getting food, do you have that feeling? And that joke is for black people. Joke wasn't even for her. You know, so in that sense, there's going to be things that people don't get. And there might have been a way to word it differently so that the people will understand that I don't hate Ukraine. But I have time to figure out all of that sometimes. Like you just have to know and trust where I'm coming from. So that's what I mean by you start putting all this purpose on every syllable you say and think that it's all going to land the right way. It's not. So you just have to stop caring altogether and just say exactly what it is you feel that you think is funny, you know, and go from there. It's just it's important to not be, you know, my biggest fear is not having someone be mad at me. It's being misunderstood. Coming up. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents. For more analysis, we turn to our very own Roy Wood Jr., everybody. Roy Wood Jr. opens up about The Daily Show, including his role as correspondent, his time as a guest host, and his future. It's like The Bachelor, but there's like eight different careers that I'm going to take on hometown visits. Disrupted continues after this break. Tell me that you love me, yeah. Tell me something good. Tell me that you like it, yeah. Got no time is what you Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking with Roy Wood Jr. about his career as a comedian, producer, and writer. After earning a degree in journalism from Florida A&M University, Roy returned to his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. He became head writer and producer for the Buckwild Morning Radio Show on WHBJ. Roy performed one of the show's signature bits by making prank phone calls to unsuspecting individuals. Hello? Barbara? Uh Uh-huh? Good morning. Good morning. This is Dr. Sidman Azibo. I call you on behalf of the Federal Social Security Administration Division. I call you about your Social Security check. 
Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. I called to let you know that we're going to be reducing your check because the government is having cutbacks right now in the midst of everything that go on with the, the hurricane and the gas price. And we try to help the gas and the surplus of the nation. So we will cut your check back down to $250 for the next 12 months. And oh, then, no, y'all won't? Yes, ma'am. Ma'am, it is going down to $250. And then we will If come. it does, I'm going to find your ass and whoop it to it and go back up. Why don't you meet me downtown at the radio station? What radio station? It's a prank phone call. It's comedian Roy Wood Jr., Barbara. How you doing? <laughs> That success from the Buckwild Morning Show and local comedy club performances led to Roy's first network television debut on The Late Show with David Letterman back in 2006. After The Late Show came appearances on HBO's iconic program, Deaf Comedy Jam, and NBC's reality series, Last Comic Standing. Over a span of seven years, Roy traveled with USO tours, got hired on the TV sitcom Sullivan and Son, and recorded his first comedy album called Things I Think I Think. Thank you for pretending you've heard of me. (laughs) Appreciate that. We're going to try and record a CD tonight so I can put you people on iTunes and make $9. (laughs) Trying to explain to my manager, well, why would you... Why would you tape a CD in Wisconsin? You're you're black. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I am black. This was the cheapest place to do it. It's it's cool. Y'all can take a picture with me after the show and tell all your friends you met a Green Bay Packer or something. You won't know. They have helmets on. You don't know what they look like. Who is he? That's Grant Jennings, baby. Trust me. That's Grant Jennings. Play with Aaron Rodgers. Catch the balls from Aaron Rodgers. His next big break came in 2015 when Comedy Central's The Daily Show named Roy Wood Jr. as one of its correspondents. We turn to one of The Daily Show's newest correspondents. Please welcome Roy Wood Jr., everyone. I'm sorry, Roy, what what the hell is peak blackness? Trevor, peak blackness is a rare metaphysical anomaly that can only occur when an amalgam of black excellence comes together at the same societal intersection. What the hell are you talking about? It's when a lot of dope black (laughs) happen at the same time. (laughs) This virus has everyone so stressed out. I mean, I'm keeping this can of disinfectant around to spray on everything. What, What else can we do to stay safe? Stop, stop, stop with that. First of all, Trevor, don't panic. The most important thing to do is wash your hands. And another thing, don't touch your face because you can make yourself sick. And if you are sick, remember to stay stay at home. Two years into his role as correspondent, Roy performed his first Comedy Central stand-up special. It's called Roy Wood Jr., Father Figure. I don't think everybody that doesn't understand what we go through is necessarily racist or bigoted. That's that's a far jump. It's a lot of folks that just straight up don't know what it's like. You got to educate them. You got to educate them on the kind of America you live in. I'd go to Best Buy and give a dude some straightening. Dude at Best Buy gonna decide I don't need a bag with my purchase. (laughs) 
you just have an iPhone case. I figure you could just pop that open. I no, I ain't popping shit. You put it in the bag. I need that in a bag. What do you need a bag for? I understand what you need a bag. It's wasteful, recycle. Don't you care about the earth? I go, sir, this has nothing to do with the earth. I'm a black man in America. I gotta leave this store with a bag, bro. It's about safety. I'm black. I don't get the luxury of just walking out with shit in my hand. That is a roll of the dice. That is a horrifying day. If I don't know, not only do I need that bag, I need that receipt. And staple it to the outside. Ask Roy about that transition from writing for other comedians and shows to this new platform of delivering political satire. What Prank Calls taught me in working the road, it showed me America from the ground level. You know, everybody should take a long bus ride through flyover country. <laughs> you know, because um, with the prank calls, the, if you go back and listen to most of the prank calls, the prank calls were just me using some crisis that a person was going through and figuring out a way to fictitiously escalate the crisis. You become panicked about said crisis and said escalation that we get into a shouting match. And then it's ha ha ha. That was funny. I was just kidding. That's the framework from 85 percent of the prank calls I did. Right. Well, the crises that I was calling people about were very real. You really do need to get your car fixed so you can get to work. You really are having an issue with your health care being approved. You really are owed two extra paychecks. So people are dealing with a lot of stuff. And by and large, you also find that people ain't got time for a lot of these bigger national conversations that are happening about stuff. I'm just trying to feed my kids. Hey, there's a pandemic and they're making kids get on Zoom. My city doesn't even have fiber optics. We all have to drive to a school bus that's been turned into a hot spot so we can download the homework assignments. And that's assuming you can afford a damn tablet. So just people dealing with real stuff. So that that foundation was kind of late. And then you go out and you do comedy shows for 10 years. My first 10 years of stand up was in middle America. I wasn't on the coast. I was out hanging with the people and drinking with people in Ames, Iowa, Columbia, Missouri, all these odd armpits of America, Paducah, Kentucky, staying and drinking and just talking about life. And through that, you get a pretty good um, you get a pretty good idea of what people are going through. So when it comes time to do the Daily Show and figure out what world problems you want to crack a joke about or give some perspective to especially in the South and the Midwest, uh, eh, I know some Confederate flag white boys. I can give you a little perspective on this. <laughs> so, you know, I have a degree in broadcast, which helps. But, you know, with stand up, I just wanted to work more and more. Um, I just want to work more and more at it and just continued to grow. And the Daily Show just always seemed like a, a happy medium because 
because I enjoyed what they do. And it was close to what I wanted to do. You know, my early journalistic influences were Stuart Scott, Jenny Moose, um, a gentleman on CNN Headline Sports at the time named Van Earl Wright. You know, and like these people did the news in a way that was zip zip. Kenny Maine, like these people who were not typical in their delivery or the places they allowed their mind to go to try and convey a story back to someone. Um, So, you know, I wanted that. And uh, the Daily Show really seemed like the only place, you know, the irony is that I was in the process of trying to create my own thing (laughs) at a point, but I, you know, that that didn't work out because I got the Daily Show. (laughs) You talked about this transition of being a correspondent for the Daily Show thinking about your own projects, thinking about what you wanted to do. And I'm curious now about what's next for you with The Daily Show. We know that now that Trevor Noah is no longer host, various people have been a part of it. What do you see as your future with The Daily Show? Uh, You know, I don't know. I'll be honest. You know, the strike has pretty much paused everything. And we're not in a position to even really sit and negotiate and figure out what they want to do in a guest host capacity. Which, you know, I I find unfortunate. I wish they would at least just announce what they want to do so that whoever they want could already be, you know, starting to think about it and figure it out. Um, I do think that I am prepared to host something, if not the Daily Show. I think somewhere, I think, you know, I, I think that I've done... You know, a great deal as a correspondent, it would be exciting to see what I could do with a little extra runway creatively, nightly or weekly, you know, whatever. But, you know, as far as I know, there isn't any um, there hasn't been any plans yet for them to announce a new host. So for me, I'm trying to write films. I'm trying to. Like. If I could write a movie, which I am, I'm going to do that. And if I sell that, then I'm going to do that. If I, if there's a TV show that I can sell, which I'm actively trying, then I'll go and do that. But, you know, I'm blessed to be able to have a lot of different opportunities and be able to do a lot of different things, a lot of different ways. So, you know, I just want to explore and see whichever opportunity presents itself. Um, you know, first isn't the word, but... I'm here to, it's like The Bachelor. That's what this is. It's like The Bachelor, but there's like eight different careers that I'm going to take on hometown visits. (laughs) Take on dates and then at the end decide who gets a rose. It may not even be The Daily Show. You know, I think that's an option too. You know, it's just a matter of what is the most efficient way for me to be able to tell the stories that are interesting to me. What's the best platform for that? For the last seven years, it's been The Daily Show. The Daily Show does not have a host. They have a series of guest hosts, which is good for the product because we get to reinvent the show. But in the long run, going into an election year, um, I don't want to continue with like I, I just want a show that has a host, even if it's not me. So, like, the idea of, well, could you continue to be a part of The Daily Show? 
I don't know. I don't know because who's the host? If the plan is to never have a permanent host again, I would much rather seek an opportunity. If the plan is to always have guest hosts, then I would rather seek an opportunity where I could go somewhere else and be a permanent host. If I had to choose today, but if they chose a permanent host and, and it's, you know, it's a cat, you know, whose mission I can get behind, of course, I would consider staying like I don't hate the job. It's a great job. But to me, my bigger mission is spreading the good gospel, getting the word out there and stuff. A special note for our listeners, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike since the beginning of May. About 10 weeks later in mid-July, and before this recording, the SAG-AFTRA union, representing more than 150,000 actors, initiated an historic walkout. TV and film stars are walking off the set and onto the picket line. This is the first full week of picketing for the union that represents 160,000 actors and performers. They, of course, join members of the Writers Guild who've been on strike for more than two months now. TV programs like The Daily Show will remain dark until an agreement is reached. This interview was recorded before the actor strike. For Roy, this historic occurrence means that he has to keep waiting for a decision from The Daily Show on its next host. Coming up after the break. Half this room think I'm Kenan Thompson. <laughs> Other half think I'm Louis Armstrong. President Biden thinks I'm the dad of y'all family matters. Hear about Roy's experience hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner. To be asked in February for an event that's in April is psychotic because that's not a lot of runway. And it is literally, I would argue, is one of the most difficult nights in comedy. You're listening to Disrupted. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, a candid conversation with comedian, producer, and writer Roy Wood Jr. Back in February, Roy was asked to host the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Two months later in April, he joined an elite list of notable comedians like Jay Leno, Seth Meyers, and Trevor Noah, who have headlined this event. As soon as the Trump document story broke, everybody was down to Mar-a-Lago. We were reporting live from the documents, and we're going to find them. And then we found out Joe Biden had documents, too, and it was like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Everybody got documents. Everybody got documents. Mike Pence has some documents. Oh, look, a Chinese spy balloon. Would you look at that? But to Tucker's staff, I want you to know that I know what you're feeling. I work at The Daily Show, so I, too, have been blindsided by the sudden departure of the host of a fake news program. <laughs> this man bought a Supreme Court justice. Do you understand how rich you have to be to buy a Supreme Court, a black one on top of that? There's only two in stock. And Harlan Crow owns half the inventory. 
We should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. They rioted because they didn't want to work till 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. Begging. Nothing seemed off limits for you at that dinner, which is a good thing because you were able to meld not just a profound respect for the journalists and the correspondents and the work that they do, but you were also able to point out some of the hypocrisy that's happening in American politics right now. Was that anything mm. on the vision board? Did you imagine that someday you'd be standing in that Hell space? No. Or when the opportunity Come came, on. you said, look, I'm gonna run with it and make Come it mine. On, doctor. Now, doctor, you know good and well, I wasn't sitting there dreaming about being petrified in front of a room full of politicians and lobbyists and political activists and <laughs> some people who were definitely there for me and supporting me and definitely some people there who were not, <laughs> who were not fans. Um, I met Gail King the night before the dinner and that was very calming. That helped. And, um, April Ryan was there, and that helped, you know, because they understood and knew my father and his legacy in journalism and what he had helped to create, and the black press being there. Um, that was that was very very important. Um, I was asked to do it in February. To be asked in February for an event that's in April is psychotic because that's not a lot of runway. And it is literally, I would argue, is one of the most difficult nights in comedy. Um, hosting the Oscars has a lot of high stakes, too. But that's just because you're performing for people who don't want to laugh. Politicians want to laugh. Media want to laugh, but they can't because their boss is at the table. So, you know, that's a different it's different from actors, you know, actors and athletes, I think, are the hardest audiences that exist. Um, but, you know, it's also something you can't say no to. I spoke in a previous interview a while back about how it almost feels like a deployment, you know. You know, like like it's like. <laughs> it's almost like your mission if you choose to accept it is to go into this room, Mr. Wood, and present 20 minutes of jokes that hopefully will make them laugh, make a point, and not end your career. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can't say no to it because when are you going to be offered that again? When are you going to be offered an opportunity to do something potentially impactful on a night where you know everybody will see you? What you going to do, say no and keep putting up your clips on Instagram and hope that you get some traction? <laughs> Let's go juggle some dynamite. That's why I got into this job. So I don't know what I'm made of, but damn it, we're going to find out <laughs> in two months. So I said yes, and I assembled a team of writers who are all smarter than me, you know, some from media, some from investigative journalism, all except for one, um, all with ties to The Daily Show in the writer's room or the producing wing of The Daily Show. And the other person wrote for Larry Wilmore on The Nightly Show. So 
still in that world, still in that lane. So, yeah, it, it was it was a good time. It, it really was a good time. I'd, I'd do it again, which is exactly why I shouldn't do it. Because you play with fire once. <laughs> you shouldn't. But that's it. When you get to the end of it and you realize, okay, this was what it was supposed to be. What's that feeling? Is it the adrenaline of let's do it again? Or do you say, look, drop the mic. It's time to go to the next thing. There's a brief moment of, and, and people can search this and see it. There's 24, the, the television show 24 that used to be on Fox. The season three finale, the final shot of season three is Kiefer Sutherland's character, Jack Bauer. And he's just saved the day from the big whatever the terrorist threat was. And he goes back to his car and he sits for about 20 seconds and he cries. He just cries. And you don't know if it's frustration, sadness for people who've died, if it's tears of joy that he succeeded, whatever it is, he's having a human moment. And then a call comes over the radio that just goes, hey, Jack, we need your interrogation to come do some more cop stuff. And he just picks up the radio and goes on the way. And he's right back into like. So it it was that. I did it. And there's a picture of me. I'm going to have it framed. There's a picture of me. I put on my Instagram the night. It's the only social post that I made about the correspondence dinner. And it's a picture of me sitting alone at the dais as the event is letting out and people are dispersing. And I'm just alone and just you just see me and you just see this room of tuxedos and ball gown dresses and just opulence. And I'm just sitting there just like I don't smoke, but I imagine that's when a smoker pulls out a cigarette. (laughs) And it's like I did it. Love it or hate it, I did it. And so at the end of the day, as a comedian, the job is to survive in advance, as they say in March Madness, you know. So I did it. And the next day, I was back home getting ready to plan a trip to go and tell jokes again, as if yesterday it never happened. I had some media hits to do, but the next on Monday, I was back at work at The Daily Show. And then the next day was the writer strike. <laughs> so it's just on to the next on to the next thing. Do you build in space for yourself to, to be in the moment, to be able to reflect on all that you're doing? Or is it this constant on to the next thing? There's days I don't do it on the day. Like, I'm not going to come home and go, that was a good thing, and I did it. Like, even with the correspondence dinner, I don't think it was probably two or three weeks before I finally sat still and just took it all in. You know, but that's me. Um, There's a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of stuff that needs to get done and executed, and so I enjoy that. You know, I I I don't subscribe to the ideology or at least I haven't completely bought into it yet. I don't subscribe to the ideology and the belief that relaxation and absorbing something looks the same for all of us. Like, 
Like people talk about work-life balance and work does not define me. Okay, cool. I understand that. And there's a lot of merit in that. But if you're doing something that you would would have been doing for free because you enjoy it and you just so happen to be getting paid to do it, is it work? Maybe it is to some degree. There's technical things you have to do, but to act like there is no fulfillment or happiness from that and that true nirvana comes from unplugging from that altogether and then going over here and doing this thing instead of that thing that supposedly made you happy all these years. If you're truly getting happiness from that, I don't see a problem with continuing to embrace that. I like that doesn't bother me because I don't hate my job. You know, there's days where it's a little tougher than others, but by and large, um, you know, going on to the next thing is how you keep things from being stressful and it not becoming too overwhelming. The correspondence dinner is psychotic. That is a psychotic thing to do. And no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you write, the news is going to change and then you have to change your set. You're doing a comedy set that best reflects the country and the nation as it is in that moment. And then that moment used to mean a couple of months, but now in that moment means that week. Throughout half my jokes two weeks before the event because of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow stuff, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon got fired six days before the event. But let's do it. You've done this before. You've done Letterman. You've done live TV. You've done Last Comic Standing, three seasons. You've done Showtime at the Apollo, contest comedy on live to tape TV. It's probably the most stressful thing next to the correspondence dinner. But you do it because it's exciting and it makes you feel alive. So you take a minute. It's like it's like when you ride a roller coaster. How long do you wait before you go get in line for the next roller coaster? Do you go go back to your car and sit and do? Wow, that was a great. No, that was awesome. Where's the next one? Where's the next mountain? Where's the next? So you can sit and reflect and breathe for a minute. Maybe that's the walk to the next coaster. But I enjoy what I do. I like what I do. So I want to do it again. And so that's so, you know, that's why, like, the idea of remaining a correspondent for years and years doesn't excite me because I want to juggle. But add another chainsaw to what I'm juggling. Let's host a show. Let's see what happens. Did the correspondence dinner. It can't it can't possibly be as stressful as that. Well, I imagine it can't be any more stressful than being a black man in the U.S. and the South telling the truth on your own terms. <laughs> Roy Wood Jr. is a comedian, actor, writer, and correspondent for The Daily Show. Roy, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Roy Wood Jr. is on a nationwide stand-up tour. To find out when he's coming to your area, you can visit his website. It's RoyWoodJr.com. Disrupted is produced by Wayne Edwards, Kevin Chang Barnum, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Carol Chin and Stacey Addo. 
You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to send us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.